Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. From the killers to From Here to Eternity to the sweet smell of success to Atlantic City and Field of Dreams, Burt Lancaster burned the screen as one of history's greatest movie stars. His impressive string of accomplishments are the centerpiece of a terrific biography from author Kate Buford. The book is titled Burt Lancaster, An American Life, and we highly recommend it. In this conversation, we discuss Lancaster's approach to his work, as well as the values that shaped his perceptions of the world and his role in it. We also spend quite a bit of time discussing one of his most interesting films, 1968's The Swimmer. This interview was conducted for our Movie Geek Yearbook series, in which we cover Lancaster's 1970 effort, Airport. Visit moviegeekyearbook.com for more details. So thank you, first of all, for your beautiful work on the book. I mean, I I, I read it cover to cover, and, and it's extraordinary because, you know, obviously it's about Burt Lancaster, but it's also about the, a great chunk of the history of Hollywood. Uh, it had yeah. to have, it had to have felt like a very daunting project. Oh, daunting is the word. <laughs> yes, um, yes, it was a daunting project. I used to joke that I ate fear for breakfast every day for five years. I mean, I had no idea how this was going to work, and um, and I had not written a book like this, anything like this before. And um, when you get into the Hollywood portion you just mentioned, which of course is his career. Um, there were like five or six parallel narratives going on at the same time. Mm. And I didn't know how to do that. <laughs> and I had to learn. Um, the other challenge is uh, getting access to all those movie stars and producers and directors. Um, and that was a strategic challenge. And um, what, I, what I started, I started with the sort of the low-hanging fruit, as it were, the associate producers and the the minor secondary stars and the people who would willingly talk to me and then trade it up. You know, I kept trading up to a higher level in the Hollywood food chain. And because then I could say, well, I've spoken to so-and-so spoken to so-and-so. And I remember the day that I got through to James Earl Jones, you know, cause he was with Burton field of dreams and he was delightful. It was a wonderful interview, but then I thought, yes, now I'm there. So I could then say to the next person, well, I've spoken to James Earl Jones, you know, and they, oh, okay, fine, I'll talk to you, you know. It had so, to have helped. Um, did, did you form a, a relationship with his widow? Yes, yes, and she remains a good friend. And, uh, in fact, I owe her a call in this coronavirus time. Mm. Um, she was very, uh, Bert himself, before he died, I had already been thinking of doing a biography, and his, his, handler or whatever took me out to dinner in Los Angeles or lunch in Los Angeles and said, Bert does not want a book. He does not ever want a book. He just, he just didn't, he was that way as you probably gathered from reading the book. He's very private, very, um, he didn't didn't want the spotlight on him. He didn't look back. Really? He didn't look back and he didn't like what Kirk Douglas had done, you know, writing these books that talked about his love affairs and, and he just thought that was trashy and he wasn't going to do anything like that. Um, so the widow was understandably reserved on his behalf, um, and none of his friends would talk to me unless I had Susie, his wife's, uh, okay. So getting her friendship and her trust, which then developed into a lovely friendship, was key because then I could say to people like Tony Curtis or whatever, he would, he would say, well, is this okay with Susie? And I would say, yes, it is, and please 
call her and ask her if you want to verify that because some people say yes I have the permission and they don't you know right. they're just uh, faking it so she um, and the whole family really uh, with the Joanna Lancaster his daughter was one of the one of his children that I dealt with and um, I waited till the very end and gave her the manuscript in I don't know galley copy or whatever uh, the, very close to the end and said, look, I won't change anything that I believe and know to be true, but if you, I will want to honor any um, changes or objections you have or uh, uh, disputes about fact of some kind that you can raise or whatever. So she read the whole thing and the only thing she had to tweak was a little bit on the description of her mother who was a very bad alcoholic um, and she said, yes, she was, but she never drank before five in the evening. <laughs> um, and she was a fantastic mother. And she was, of course, as the book says, but she emphasized that too and added a couple of other details about her mother's involvement in civil rights and social justice movements in Los Angeles. So that was fine. You know, yeah. that was really good. Yeah. But they you were know, great. When, you know, as a, as a researcher, uh, on this book, I know you you were probably obsessed with getting as as many as much material and as many recollections as you possibly could. And I have run into the same thing to a much much lesser extent to putting the series together because I'm trying to mm. join join together as many voices as possible to outline this history. And it's difficult to sometimes to find the narrative in that material. But at the end, I'm thinking when you're doing a biography. I think to myself, how possible is it to truly know who a person is? But at the end of this journey, what did you find Lancaster's, um, what was his essence that you found? That is a really, really great question. Um, I commend you on that, Jamie. Um, I think one, just as in life, I don't think, Anyone can ever truly know someone else. There's always a private little part of each of us that um, we may approximate it. We may get close. I'm talking on a personal level now. But as a biographer, it's the same thing, only much harder if your subject is dead so you can't actually speak to him or her. Um, with Bert, I felt I understood him better than I did, say, Jim Thorpe, my next subject, the Native American athlete. Um, Bert, to be his essence, was a kind of organic fearlessness. He really wasn't afraid of the things that most of us are afraid of. And along with that, because he was that way, he resisted definition, which kind of is the ultimate answer to your question. And you can see that in the diversity of screen roles that he takes on. He did not want to be pigeonholed into one kind of actor, which Hollywood was still doing when he started out in the late 40s and certainly into the 50s. And that curiosity that he had, hunger, curiosity, energy, of course he had a lot of physical energy, but it was mental energy too, to be exposed to as many different things as he could. And I think that was the essence of him. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree from reading your book that that that's what comes off. Um, and he he was a a man that did it his own way, 
there was an authentic mm-hmm. authenticity of character about him. And I find this with, and maybe this is me projecting about a, a, a being nostalgic, but I find that the movie stars of that period of time when he came up, there did, f- I did feel an authenticity, a, 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 a genuineness that you you're seeing the guy um, mm-hmm. that I don't necessarily feel today. It almost, it, you know, that old adage, they don't make them like they used to. It, it really feels true. Mm-hmm. And is that just my projection or was that really how it was? No, I think that's a really good point. And that there's a historical basis for that, which I go into a little bit in the book that Lancaster's generation, of course, had been through world war II. Um, he had been in the entertainment division with Mark Clark's fifth army in Italy and um, he didn't fight. He wasn't in combat, was behind the lines anyway. But he observed World War II, and it was a pretty awful time in Italy. But that generation arrived back, and they were changed. You know, sort of like the Vietnam veterans, only this was a bigger war. Um, they weren't going, they wanted to be authentic. They wanted to come back and remake a world that was better than the one that they had fought for. Um, and so you see on the part of the public as well, a hunger because they'd been through the war. The old sentimentalities, the old cliches weren't going to hold up anymore. Mm. So that generation of actors were themselves different, but the audience was different too. So yeah. you get these more authentic seeming actors. And yeah. There's also, you know, this is a total aside, but I find it interesting just how the, the nature of masculinity has changed over the decades, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and you mm-hmm. think Lancaster and you think that certain, that degree of masculinity that he had, um, you know, th- uh, he's when you also, when you think of Mitchum or Mitchum, also, when you think of Lancaster, you think of his beautiful physicality and mm-hmm. that, and that mm-hmm. was, no, that was no accident because he, he started as an acrobat, didn't he? Yes. Yes. He started as an acrobat in the thirties. Um, he grew up in East Harlem in Manhattan and a very poor neighborhood. Um, And he started to learn acrobatics at uh, the Union Settlement House, one of the many settlement houses that were across the East Coast to train new immigrants into the American way of life. And he trained as an acrobat. And then he and one of his best friends, Nick Cravat from East Harlem, went off and joined the circus in uh, the early 30s and ended up just crisscrossing the country in these little circuses. Um, and the circus was a very big deal back then before television and uh, the Internet certainly gave access to all kinds of entertainment. So he had that physical, he was born with good looks. I mean, he was tall, good looking, I mean, that sort of chiseled face. Um, but he loved physical exercise and he he wasn't a fanatic by any means but he he loved it and he loved the challenge he was too tall to be an acrobat they're usually little guys Mm. but he didn't care he learned how to do that and he brought that physicality to the screen um he has a grace of movement um kind of a fluidity of movement that comes because he's physically agile and physically fit and also he and i think this was fairly true not just hyperbole on the press agent part, but that he did want to do all his own stunts in those movies that required that kind of physical exertion Yeah. because it was like the circus. He wanted the audience to know that he was really doing what he was doing up there on the screen. Mm. And he really was, uh, I mean, he came out right, right out of the gate with the killers, 
So he really was, mm-hmm. a, a, in a way, an overnight sensation. He was. Oh, yeah. It was one of the, and again, the audience was hungry. This was, you know, 1946. They were hungry for new stars, new faces, new stories. And, um, of course, this was based on a Hemingway story, but then extended the whole backstory. But, yeah, he was an overnight sensation. I mean, it was bang. That was it. That that film hit a nerve. How did he take to stardom? Did did he wear it well? Mm, yeah, he he grabbed it in a way. He wasn't interested in the stardom. That's a really good question. He was interested right from the beginning in what that stardom could get him in terms of control over his own career. Mm. And he was 33 when he arrived in Hollywood. He burned through the circus. He'd been through the army and the war. He had to, and he had a. a a new baby and his wife, um, he needed to figure out some way to make a living and stick at it. He was tired of, you know, shuttling around the country in the circus. So um, this stardom, he immediately looked around, and other actors were doing this, but he was really the, the most successful in many ways. He looked around and thought, oh, well, I should have a production company. I should be in charge of my own movies, or at least some of them. And so he started a production company um, named for his wife, Norma Productions, in the late 40s. And as I say in the book, there were lots of actors trying to do this because with the paramount antitrust case in the late 40s that made the studios break up their vertical ownership of all aspects of the movies from the making of them to the owning of the movie theaters, um, everybody wanted to be a producer and take advantage of this. But very few of them had the dedication and the discipline to stick with it and he did yeah so the stardom brought him power and he used that power then well it also speaks to his kind of insatiable curiosity about the process of putting films together and storytelling i mean he he really immersed himself and made it a point to observe how that was done right oh yeah right from the beginning (laughs) He sort of irritated everyone in the Paramount lot because he'd hang around to see what, what, what actually did the producers do? <laughs> he wanted to, to know what these guys did, like, you know, Hal Wallace and the others. Um, and then, of course, he, he figured, well, he called Hollywood one big circus. He figured out, well, I can do this. And, mm. in fact, he could um, and got better and better at it as he went along. But, um, yeah, so he just he, – he went to talk to the costume designer, the editor, the producers – the writers, everyone, to learn, okay, what are the component parts of a movie and how do I learn how important each one is? Well, and, and for someone that that uh, so creative and, I'm sure, opinionated about material, um, in general, how did he work with directors? <laughs> Not well. <laughs> um, <laughs> he... He had a real nose. This is probably East Harlem street smarts. He had a real nose for two things. One, incompetence. If the director, in his opinion, in Lancaster's opinion, didn't know what he was doing. It was always a man, so I say he. And secondly, he could smell insecurity. And those two things often went together. And when he uh, sensed them, smelled them in a director, he was impossible. Impossible. Um, he drove them nuts. Most notable, well, there are lots of examples, but uh, Robert Sidemack on The Crimson Pirate, and I go into some detail in the book on that production story, literally supposedly drove Sidemack back to um, Europe. I mean, it was, he was just, he could be brutal, really, really brutal. 
when he lost his temper was it, was it grounded in kind of his his belief in himself and his own way of seeing things oh yeah yeah he was only angry because it was about the work um he wasn't for example many people told me stories about kirk douglas who was really much more egotistical and um tony curtis in particular so kirk would could raise difficulties on a set for his own personal mm anger about something like a camera no needs to be over there so it's better on me you know kind of thing Bert was not that way it was what's serving the large as far as I was able to establish it was serving the the work itself um he would feel that the story wasn't being properly told or any one of a myriad of but it was not personal it was not egotistical yeah did he view himself as an artist I mean would he ever use that term to describe himself no <laughs> no <laughs> He, um, and that's because of a certain modesty, you know, he, um, he had such, um, admiration, veneration for real artists, musicians, you know, classical music or painters. He bought, you know, many famous Renoir and others, painters. He knew real art when he saw it and he, he taught himself that as well. He would get such a, such a, uh, refreshingly self-effacing manner so he would never indulge in calling myself an artist you know no 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 that was bullshit he was not going to do that <laughs> but it, how much did his um how much did his social consciousness play a role in in what material he chose oh a lot uh particularly as he grew older um you find uh i'm trying to scroll through my memory here like in the the 50s, of course, were, were the real zenith time when he had his own production company and was also had several contracts with Warner Brothers, with Paramount. He was, as Hedda Hopper said, he was sliced more ways than a watermelon. And so his, his, he always had a, a highly developed social consciousness from his days in East Harlem, which was a heavily reform-minded neighborhood. And those principles sunk into him like religion and never left him. So as he gets older, as he... And this is what was so interesting, too, about his career. When he had the power to decide what kind of movies he really wanted to make, and that came more and more toward the late 50s and then into the 60s, he started to make movies like Elmer Gantry, of course, for which he won the, the Oscar, um, A Judgment at Nuremberg. Mm. Um, the Swimmer can't really be called a socially conscious movie, but it's about a certain angst, you know, uh, behind the supposed affluence of American life. Um, when he gets into the 70s, the very interesting movies that are, there really have been recently discovered or rediscovered. Um, there was, uh, Ozana's Raid, which was really about the Vietnam War, but is encased in a Western, um, directed by Robert Aldrich. Uh, that's one of the really, really best of these 70s movies that mm. uh, really were under the radar, but tops really good. And Go Tell the Spartans, which is directly about Vietnam. And um, one of, somebody said it's the mind to the body of platoon. It's a really smart, intelligent movie. So he's making those sorts of movies um, when he has the freedom to do so and just keeps on doing that. He also makes, I mean, from the very beginning, his wife, second wife, Norma, um, the mother of his five kids, said, make one for the bank and one for art. 
So he would go back and forth on that. You can see that in the 50s. He makes Gunfight at the OK Corral and Sweet Smell of Success in the same year. And guess right. which one was a hit? <laughs> which one wasn't? <laughs> yes, Sweet Smell of Success, that didn't catch on until much later, did it? Oh, yeah, it bombed. Well, you had, again, uh, in your imagination, cast back to late 50s Hollywood. Again, lots of interesting movies are being made, but the studio system is dying a slow death. Mm. And the independent production movement is just starting to come out. And Lancaster's company was one of the Hectil Lancaster, it later came to be called, was one of the bridges between studio domination and independent production. So in the late 50s, when Sweet Smell comes out, it's got two big stars. Burt Lancaster, that's one of Lancaster's own studios movies with Sweet Smell. Um, you've got Lancaster and Tony Curtis, both of whom are big stars, and they're playing these venal, evil people. <laughs> and you still didn't do that in Hollywood. And the audience, of course, it's a pretty grim story, just said, I mean, they just wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And now it's, you know, one of the great American movies. Yeah, it absolutely is. You know, I am uh, I'm 46, so uh, I grew up, obviously, on the great cinema of the 70s. And mm. so, but when I think of Burt Lancaster, the first film that comes to my mind is The Swimmer, which I think was released in 68, mm -hmm. because it feels... Mm -hmm. It feels so much of a piece with that great 70s cinema that I love, even though it came out before. It's this mm -hmm. very, very mm -hmm. unblinking character study done in this fascinating, unusual way. And I, I, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about uh, Bert's uh, connection to that material, how, how personal it felt to him and, and the process of putting that together. Well, it was a... a a pretty problematic shoot and they shot up in Connecticut um, in the Westport area. Uh, it's a John Cheever story um, it's based on a John Cheever story. John Cheever, the great American writer was also on the set. He has a little bit performance at one of the pool scenes. Um, Lancaster by this point was a pretty tough Hollywood creature and smoked camels one after the other. And uh, somebody asked if he, would like to switch to menthols or something. And he said, no, I like my lungs charred and black, <laughs> which they were. Um, but this is a very difficult movie for him personally. Um, and as I mentioned in the book, Cheever was writing letters to a friend of his at the time. And, and I consulted those letters and as well as Cheever's son, Benjamin Cheever was a great help on this part of the book. Um, Cheever and Burt Lancaster were so dissimilar in many ways. Uh, Cheever, the, the sort of literary writer and very sardonic and witty, and Lancaster, the big, larger-than-life Hollywood star. The two of them end up next to swimming pools in Connecticut this hot summer. And uh, Cheever observed Lancaster very closely, and he thought they were turning into really great pals, you know, again, with a tongue-in-cheek. Um, but he noticed... And other people, too, as the shoot became more and more difficult, and it was a difficult piece of work anyway, it was very much mirroring Lancaster's own life. His marriage was falling apart, the one to Norma. Um, he was past his peak, just like Nettie Merrill, you know, running from pool to pool in the, in the swimmer and not knowing what was going to be at home. So, well, Nettie Merrill assumes his home is going to be there with all his children and he get back to this wonderful life. 
And as we know from watching the movie, when he arrives, the sunshine is gone, the storm is raging, the house is locked and blocked up, and the family's gone. And for mm-hmm. Lancaster, his own family were leaving. They were gone. The kids were all gone. He was going to get divorced from his wife. His career was fading, although he'll go on to make very interesting films, but he's not the big big shot that he was um, in the movie. So it's a very eerie to watch that movie um, knowing a little bit about Lancaster's own chronology because it hit a little too close to home. Yeah. I sense, that, I sense that watching the movie. Before I read your biography of him, it feels like that kind of movie. And it, it, for me, it, it definitely felt like a transitional movie for him because mm-hmm. obviously throughout the movie, he's wearing these skimpy swim trunks. I mean, for, for the entire yeah. run of the movie. So he's a depressive <laughs> physical specimen. So that's still mm-hmm. present there. And yet what seeped in there is a sense of weariness and these, he feels wounded in the movie. Mm. So it does feel like mm-hmm. a, a performance that teeters between the old Lancaster and what will become the new Lancaster. That's very true. That's very perceptive. Um, yeah, and this beautiful body, you know, is aged just a little bit, although, you know, he's in his 50s here, you know. So I don't know if you saw the um, the original hardcover from Knopf, the biography. Maybe you didn't. But... I don't think so. Okay, well, on the back, this is a funny story because it involves a swimmer. On the back cover, the outside cover, is a picture of Lancaster nude walking towards the swimming pool. It's a still from, from the swimmer. And even before I wrote this book, the um, art editor at Knopf, Carol Carson, looked at that picture and she said, back cover, just boom, just like that, back yeah. cover. And it's really a remarkable piece of photographic work. And this body is beautiful, you know, and you're seeing from the back, but it's beautiful. And so in order, when it came down to crunch time, we're going to press with this book. We needed to get, it turned out, the permission for using that photograph was not the studio, but it was the family. <laughs> so I um, called Joanna, and I said, Joanna Lancaster, one of his daughters, and I said, I sent her a copy of it, and I said, could we get your approval to use this on the back cover? And to their credit, this, I mean, his kids are sort of like him. She emailed back and said, it's such a beautiful shot. You have our permission to use it. Mm. So, yeah, but it's a very poignant picture. It says it all, just like you just said. Here's this beautiful masculine body. I'm looking at it right now in the 50s, his 50s, slightly stooped, walking to the swimming pool. Yeah, and and, and the character is... is sheds layers throughout the movie in a way it's Mm -hmm. about it's about ending up being you know completely naked and so uh yeah what an extraordinary film that is i mean uh it's it's one of the great shining examples of the best of that era's cinema i think and that was an i agree totally and that was another example like sweet smell of one that utterly flopped um it was too raw it was it it hit a nerve (laughs) And think of all the things that were happening in the country at that time. Um, it hit a nerve that was too painful, and um, it bombed at the box office. So it's another one of those Lancaster movies that had to wait to be appreciated. Yeah. 
I uh, I won't belabor this this point, um, but uh, you you mentioned earlier that that Lancaster would do one for one for the audience and one for the art, and clearly airport mm-hmm. airport was one for the audience. <laughs> <laughs> One for the bank, yeah. That but was but I, I, I would imagine yeah. it was his most financially successful film. Oh yeah, by far. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, and um, yeah, he, he was not excited about it. But this is a couple of years after the swimmer, and um, he needed the money. Uh, he was in the middle of a divorce from Norma, and uh, he agreed to do it. And he called it. What did he say? Um, biggest piece of junk ever made, or whatever, something <laughs> like that. Um, it was not his kind of movie, but it was the most financially successful, and he got a cut of the profit, so he just, the money kept rolling in. And I think, as I mentioned to you in one of our emails, um, Union Settlement House in East Harlem, which is still alive and thriving, I've been on the board for like 20 years, um, thanks to the Lancaster Project, they asked me to come on the board. Um, he, in his will, gave the residuals of airport to Union Settlement. So every year, a check for like twenty, thirty thousand dollars keeps rolling in the Union Settlement from Airport, which still oh. earns that amount of money. That's amazing. Um, so, so tell me, yeah. tell me what Union Settlement and and the role it played in his life. Um, at the end of the nineteenth century, we had this country had a huge influx of immigrants. That's when the Statue of Liberty goes up in New York Harbor, particularly Italians, and we'd already had the Irish, Jewish, German. Scandinavian, but then Italians came in the 1880s, 1890s, and big cities like New York, Chicago, Washington, Boston, were um, had this influx of immigrants who didn't speak English and needed to be the enlightened civic authorities. Felt that they needed to be um, given a hand up on to getting into American life, to give the skills that they needed. So what were founded around the eastern and midwestern Chicago mainly were these settlement houses and settlement came from the word the helpers the people who worked there were not do-gooders who then went home to the suburbs every night they settled in the neighborhood so they would learn the issues that were of primary concern to these new arrivals it sounds like another world right yeah. now but um, so Union Settlement House, it was named for Union Theological Seminary over on the other side of the park near Columbia, um, was set up uh, in the uh, 125 years ago this year. Um, they had to cancel their gala to celebrate it because of the coronavirus. Um, was set up to uh, cope with these immigrants that were flooding into East Harlem where a whole bunch of new tenement houses were being thrown up. And so Bert his entire family, his siblings, and would go down a couple of blocks to Union Settlement House, and that's where they, mainly for Bert, it was sports, you know, not just acrobats, but he's a very good basketball player. Mm-hmm. And he also worked there. He helped um, coach and train some of the younger kids, and as a result, he got a scholarship to NYU, which he attended for two years before going off to join the circus. But Union Settlement, all the settlement houses, and they still are, Union Settlement today is powerful lobbying force for the most vulnerable and newest among us in this society um and he he absorbed that lesson and he could see it all around him every day and his mother always helped anyone less fortunate on the block um and so those core progressive we call them now values um 
he absorbed into his skin. And, and as I said earlier, they never left him. It's so beautiful that his legacy still contributes to to that cause, though, and mm-hmm. even, even in his absence. And I would imagine that if he were around today, he'd probably be front and center speaking out about this issue since it's such a, a hot button issue today. Oh, he would be. He would be. And he, he it wasn't just union settlement. I mean, he became an advocate for he was one of the at the March on Washington with Martin Luther King. Um, he was right there next to King up there on the steps. Mm. And um, he also and again, very quiet. I mean, he wasn't doing that as a celebrity type person. He was actually bringing a petition of people who had signed a petition in favor of King from Europe. And he was a designated person to do that. He also was one of the earliest advocates in publicizing AIDS um, when most people wouldn't touch it. Um, he was a very quiet advocate for prison reform um, coming from his, his uh, role in Birdman of Alcatraz. He typically learned everything that was about prison, you know, in order to play Robert Stroud. And he quietly uh, advocated and gave money for that cause. And so there, he kept it up all his life, just very quietly. He never wanted publicity. He would just say, thank you, don't put my name on this. Uh, use the money well. Yeah, that was his style. I I just have a, a, a t- two more quick questions for you. You've been so generous sure. generous with your time. Oh, um, fine. Time to talk about Bert. I want to know how age impacted uh, his choices. How he kind of uh, evolved into an older age as an actor. How you view that transition? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, very good question. That was a big challenge in writing the book. Um, any biography of a famous person, you know, there's the childhood and the values and the upbringing. Then there's this bright period when they were famous and making all these movies or whatever the subject you're writing about is doing. Or an athlete like Jim Thorpe, for example. And then when they fall out of the Hollywood limelight, or in the case of an athlete, their body won't do what made them famous anymore, what do they do with their life? Um, it's an existential question, but as a biographer, it's like, okay, how do I make this interesting? Because he continues to live quite a long time after his zenith, his, his glory days. And I found that he was really, it became the, what I thought one of the, the most interesting parts of the book because he used his old age to continue to make interesting films. He began to make films with foreign directors, such as Visconti. Oh, um, beautiful, the beautiful the movie. One of the, yeah, The Leopard oh, is great. Oh, and um, he worked with Bertolucci in 1900, Novocento. He worked with Robert Altman, Altman on Buffalo Bill and the Indians. He, he goes into these movies... Um, as I said, like, go tell the Spartans. Um, and then of course, and, uh, um, other one, I'm forgetting. Ozana's raid. He starts to use his older body to answer your question. Use this sort of grizzled wisdom he has in the service of characters that can present that kind of wisdom. Um, and chooses plots. Not always. There's a couple of clinkers in there. He's always making money. He has to make money like the Cassandra crossing, for example. Um, but we get to, we slowly then warm up to something like Atlantic City. Yeah. Where, and maybe you were going to ask about that anyway, that movie earned him his fourth Oscar nomination. And people called him after that movie came out 
and said, Bert, you got it. You did it. You know, it's like the distillation. And that movie was what started me on this whole idea of doing a biography of Burt Lancaster, even though I didn't think of it in those terms. I went to see Atlantic City when it came out, thinking, oh, Burt Lancaster, I hardly remember him. And what is he doing? Kind of curiosity. And a bunch of us went to see it. And I thought, wow, how does this guy who I vaguely remember as being like this athletic, Mr. Muscles and Teeth, and look, he's playing this down-and-out loser. There's a story there. <laughs> there is a story there. And it was many years after that that I then finally ended up writing about that. But that's the story. You watch Atlantic City. And I thought, what kind of cool did this guy have mm. to take on a role? He's like going back to the killers. It's as if the guy in the killers, this, you know, the Swede, the, the wannabe who never amounts to much of anything, grows old and is still in Atlantic City. And what does he do? It was perfect. I mean, thematically, it was elegantly perfect. So I think in some ways, who knows what his, I don't know what his process was. Louis Malle, of course, was a great director. Susan Sarandon was a great help because her father was Lancaster's commanding officer in World War II. Really? So yeah. that was cool. Oh, yeah. And she gave me permission to talk to her dad. And, um, yeah, that movie... He knew with that movie, he knew, I mean, he said as much, and other people who knew him well told me, he knew with that movie, he'd finally mastered this craft that he'd begun with, you know, way back in 1946, um, that he knew he didn't know what he was doing. He knew he had to learn. That's why he took on so many different kinds of roles. Even if he was ridiculed, he didn't care. Mm. It was his learning process, and it all came home in Atlantic City. It's a beautiful, another beautiful movie and performance, and I, I, I feel like it's one of the defining in his career. Louis Mao, you feel like the director knew how to use him, knew how to play upon his particular iconography. Yeah, you know that he well, brought to it. And well, this loops back to one of your early questions. <laughs> Lancaster was really difficult on that set. You know, because he thought the little Frenchman didn't know what he was doing, you know. <laughs> so the little Frenchman knew exactly what he was doing. And just to your point, I mean, Bert would kind of lapse into a well-learned, well-studied lifetime physical response to something. And Louis Ball would go, no, 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 let's try that again. You know, and they tried again and again. And Lancaster, you know, slow burn, smoke coming out of his ears. They had a lot of conflict because Mal was um, trying to get him to discard some of these tried and true mannerisms that he had and break through something else. Yeah. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And he did. Uh, mm -hmm. how, did how did he feel about mm -hmm. Field of Dreams? I mean, Field of Dreams, obviously. I mean, did he recognize its potential? Or did he see it as, you know, a lot of people see that movie as cornmeal. Uh, but, uh, mm. but, uh, it, it, but it means a whole lot to a bunch of other people Did did it, was it meaningful to him? Yes, he doesn't, by that point, he really liked becoming friends with James Earl Jones. <laughs> that was the most fun about that shoot. Um, the movie itself, uh, he didn't talk much about Sealed of Dreams, but in his own mind, of course, he was an athlete. I'm thinking aloud here because he didn't go on record as saying that much about Field of Dreams. But as an athlete, as someone who played sports and who would revere the importance of sports in people's lives, I think the beauty of that fantasy 
was important to him. Um, and of course, he walks, that's his last movie, and he walks into the cornfield and out of the movies, which is, again, another kind of perfect little ending. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the movie, it's not one of my favorites because I thought it was kind of, you know, sentimental and extreme, um, which was not his style. But um, it ended up being such a touchstone for so many people. Um, you know, the other movie that he did really love and is also a touchstone is Local Hero, which he made mm. also toward the end. That movie just goes on and on and on. I mean, it keeps showing and people keep watching it and loving it. And he loved making that movie. That was a blast because he was in Scotland and he loves golf. And he made friends with everybody on the set. Um, it was one of his happiest experiences as local hero. Um, yeah. And yeah. it's funny, you know, speaking, speaking to that, I'll just add this little detail that recently, you know, the, 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 uh, whatever it's called app or whatever, Google alerts, which I have for Burt Lancaster so that I can see if something comes up that mentions him. I kid you not in the last year, every single day, there's a Google alert for Burt Lancaster. Huh. One of his movies is showing somewhere <laughs> um, or someone's writing about him or writing about one of his movies or, and this is a phenomenon. I mean, I've had that Google alert for years, but this last 12 months or so, uh, it's every day, every day. So I don't know how to interpret that, but there you are. <laughs> The work yeah. survives, and 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 just like yeah. local local hero, he's he's made films that endure and are begging for discovery by different generations, and so thank Absolutely. goodness thank goodness they have. Uh, mm-hmm. So you you wrote about Lancaster, you wrote a, a, a biography of Jim Thorpe. Is there mm-hmm. another subject that uh, you're you got your sights set on now? Mm, not really. Um... Not at the moment. Another biographer and I, she's in New York. She and I formed a company about four years ago to also do private biographies. So biographies of families, individuals, corporations, nonprofits, um, projects. And that's been a big success. Hmm. So it's been fun to turn the biographical skills for the benefit of non-famous people. Yeah. Um, ordinary people, so-called. But nobody's ordinary. Everybody has a story. And that was sort of the genesis of this project. So that's what has been absorbing my energies for the last couple of years. But you never know. I have always interested in another book project. Well, I have, you know, I, I find a similar thing in putting the series together because um, I'm covering the majority of movies released in 1970. And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of these titles, uh, I've heard people say, "Why? what are you going to do with that one? What, what could you possibly do? And I... And I say, you know, they're they're like people. Um, somebody mm. somebody loved them. Somebody wanted the very <laughs> best for them. Uh, they were someone's baby, mm-hmm. regardless of how they turned yeah. out. I mean, yeah, yeah I, that's a really good point because I think nothing, everything happens on this earth because someone had a passion for something. I mean, I'm looking at this. Well, iPhone, obviously, <laughs> people have passions for iPhones, but anything you look at, somebody. I'm looking around my room. Someone had to have a passion to make it happen. And um, there's always a story behind everything, including, you know, movies that we would dismiss now. In fact, even more so, because like you just said, Lancaster's movies bear repeated viewings and rediscovery. Yeah. 
Well, Kate, my friend, thank you so much for your wonderful work, and thank you for giving me time to talk today. It's It's been a great pleasure to speak to you. Well, Jamie, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. You prepared extremely well, and your questions were really excellent. I'll send you a, a photograph of that back cover of the hardcover edition of the Lancaster bio, so you'll see... What a cool back cover. I, I will frame it. I'll put it on my wall, and, and people people that come <laughs> over will say, why do you have a naked man hanging in your... <laughs>